You're listening to The Dead Prussian, a podcast about war and warfare. I'm not sure if it's hegemony or hegemony, but hegemonic sounds pretty cool. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then at least you've downloaded the show. What happens when the dominant power in a region or the globe, both in both terms political and military, and some could argue culturally, uh, declines and another power, uh, possibly a uh, rising power that's been on the scene for a while, takes over the role of Globocop in the region or the globe. I actually don't know. I've read a lot of history, I think I know, but I need someone to confirm it for me. G'day listeners, how are you? Welcome to the Dead Prussian Podcast, the only podcast out there named after a 19th century military thinker. And of course, the podcast with the humblest host of a podcast (laughs) named after a 19th century military thinker. Thank you very much to all the listeners out there that have been uh, engaging in iTunes reviews, joining our subscription program on Patreon sending us feedback uh, via our email and just generally being good listeners. For the rest of you, well, at least you downloaded the show. Now, today we're talking about hegemonic power transfer. Now, I actually really like the term hegemonic power transfer. So that's why we're talking about that term. Um, But I actually don't know much about it. So like always, I have to get a guest in. And my guest today has just written a book on the peaceful transfer of hegemonic power in the 20th century. So that kind of works out really, really well. And my guest today, of course, is Dr. Corey Shockey. She is the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. She's the author of Safe Passage, The Transition from British to American Hegemony, and that was published by Harvard in 2017. And she was also the editor with Jim Mattis of Warriors and Citizens, American Views of Our Military, Hoover Institution, 2016. And we did that uh, topic in an earlier interview with Corey uh, last year. No, probably 2016. So go back and have a look at that. She has worked for the National Security Council staff, the State Department's policy staff, and both the military and civilian staffs in the Pentagon. In 2008, she was a senior policy advisor on the McCain presidential uh, campaign whose uh, son happens to be a good friend of the show. Hi, Jack, how are you going? And she taught thinking about war (laughs) at Stanford University. And also the faculties of the United States Military Academy, the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the University of Maryland. Corey, welcome back. Thanks for coming on the show. It is so much fun to be back with you, Mick. I, I love having you on the show, Corey, because you laugh at my jokes, or at least you laugh at me, so it's great. <laughs> so, uh, Corey, before we delve into the fascinating world of hegemonic power transfer, there you go, listeners, I've said it again, um, I'd like to know a little bit more about uh, what got you interested in this particular topic, and also, like, what's changed since last time we spoke to you, because uh, last time I'm pretty sure you were living in California, shaping the minds of young Stanford students. Um, which, uh, for those who don't know, it's a reasonably okay university in the US, um, writing about civil-military divides with uh, the now Secretary of Defence. So that was, that was a pretty cool time. But what's new? <laughs> what's new is I have the great good fortune to be the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, the best defence think tank in the world. 
and also to uh, have the privilege of teaching among the faculty of war studies at King's College here in London. Awesome, awesome. And so that means that you're uh, you're experiencing uh, TV licenses uh, in in a, in a, in a city car taxes. Uh, big red buses and tube stations. Is that right? Those and many other things are shocks to my system. I painted the interior of my office as the cerulean blue of a California sky because I was missing it so much. Well, uh, but to answer the actual question that you asked, which is what got me interested in the subject of hegemonic power transition. It was all the talk about the rise of China and what that means for the United States and whether it can happen peacefully. Uh, I'm actually not a historian of the 19th century, but I got curious about it. And I didn't even know when I started writing the book that there's only one peaceful transition of power between an established hegemon, that is the rule giver and enforcer of international order, and a rising power. I actually didn't realize that the transition from British dominance to American dominance of the international order is the only peaceful one ever. Wow. Well, that's that's interesting. So we'll definitely have to unpack that because uh, it just means I don't have to read anything now about it because I already know. <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have to read Wait about the one. You didn't read it before you <laughs> <laughs> most as most of my uh, as most of my guests know, it is rare for me to read their book before uh, they come on the show. Just because I've got a really long book uh, catalog. For those that don't know, I uh, I live okay, in a bachelor no, pad no, no. full of you books. You are not getting a pass on that. Uh, what is it about Australian training and doctrine that says you don't have to read the books to gain the knowledge? <laughs> yeah, you just interview the author. Then it's a shortcut. No, no sale, my friend. <laughs> well, uh, Fire well, headquarters is going to hear about this one. <laughs> we'll move on to the uh, topic so that I'm less embarrassed. Um, but I do, uh, I do thank you for answering the actual question. Lots of my guests don't do that. Uh, but I like, <laughs> I like the title of your book, uh, Safe Passage. I'm not really sure why. It's just a pretty cool term. Um, but in this book, you discuss everything from the Monroe Doctrine of 19... Uh, correction, not 19. You can tell I haven't read the book. Uh, the Monroe Doctrine of 1823 <laughs> uh, through to the special relationship between the uh, United Kingdom and the United States during the Second World War. And we'll say Second World War because you're in the UK now rather than World War II. Uh, and for those people who don't know, uh, those general listeners out there, the difference between World War II and Second World War and World War One and the First World War is a real big sticking point between US and British military historians. Australians tend to flip-flop on either side. Uh, and, they'll, and some Australians will probably uh, lambast me for that. But that's not what we're talking about. Uh, my question is, how is it that transfer of hegemonic power, see, I switched it up there, listeners, uh, between the US and the UK, how is it that it, was, that it was peaceful? I mean, these two nations had their stouches before. Like, they, they'd fought and gone to war with each other before, so it wasn't off the cards, right? That's exactly right. In fact, that a peaceful transition between Britain and the United States would not have been the smart money bet in 1823. Not only did we fight Britain twice before that, once in the Revolution and then 
second time in the War of 1812. Yeah. But Americans in the early 19th century defined ourselves in opposition to Britain. They are what we weren't. Yeah. Um, and and what I learned studying the nine inflection points that comprise the book is that the reason that the transition from British dominance to American dominance was peaceful was that for the crucial 15 years or so where they were peer competitors, Britain had expanded the franchise and political representation. So it had become a democracy. And the United States, because of our westward expansion across the continent, had become an empire. And so we looked similar to each other and different from everybody else. And that sense of commonality uh, created the space for compromise and crisis in a way that it wouldn't with other countries. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, before I unpack that, because I actually uh, have something very closely related to that, um, what are these nine inflection points over the history? Uh, without giving away the book, because we still need to buy it, uh, yours, <laughs> yours truly included. Uh, the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, which, of course, you know, Mick, was a British proposal to the United States for us together to police the Americas uh, that, that ends up unilaterally American policy. Uh, the second uh, inflection point I look at at the book, in the book, is uh, the Oregon boundary crisis of 1845. Uh, before then, Britain and the United States had joint sovereignty over the Oregon Territory, what is now Oregon, Washington State, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana. We had joint sovereignty, and that worked because it was largely unpopulated. Uh, yeah. But then with westward expansion, it becomes contentious. The third inflection point I look at in the book is why the British didn't recognize the Confederacy during the American Civil War, oh. which would have been a low-cost way to impede the rise of what was by then uh, a lengthening sh a country that, to use Benjamin Disraeli's phrase, was casting lengthening shadows across the Atlantic. Yeah. The fourth example I use isn't a particular crisis. It's the cultural change in the 1870s in the United States and in Britain. Yeah. That is the, the determination of a sense of national identity that really congeals for both countries in that period. The fifth that I look at is the, uh, the unjustifiably obscure Venezuelan debt crises in 1895 and 1905. <laughs> and the 1895 one is the real moment of choice for both Britain and the United States. Yeah. Uh, and in which the United States is willing to choose violence and Britain chooses accommodation. Uh, I also look at the Spanish-American War, World War One. The Washington Naval Accords of 1923, which was where I wanted to end the book. Yeah. <laughs> but reader number one, who I subsequently learned was Laurie Friedman, oh, persuaded yes. Harvard that I needed to end with, with World War II because that's the kind of big screen technicolor conclusion of my argument. 
Yeah, so a, a famous military historian asked for the biggest war in history to be included in there. Um, thanks, Laurie. <laughs> um, okay, that, that counts as taking sides, Max. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm taking your side um, because uh, because the Washington the, Na- the, Na- the Washington Naval Treaty was uh, so exciting. Um, <laughs> it would have been something fascinating. Okay, what it was was the first time that the United States had the ability to impose a set of rules on Britain that Britain believed were injurious to its national interests. And we didn't care. We imposed them anyway. Yeah, I mean, it went... That's why I thought that was the place to end the book. And, and, it, and, and it also did very well for Japanese-American relations as well. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, it's, it's what forces the innovation in Japanese and American navies that bring you aircraft carriers. Yeah, and uh, and I, I like aircraft carriers um, because they're really big. Um, <laughs> but, Corey, I want to... Uh, so I'll tell you that before you go on, a joke almost as bad as your own jokes... Okay, I don't uh, believe that. ...would be the way that the Royal Navy... So one of the things the Washington Naval Accords did is set limits on tonnage and numbers yeah. of ships... And the British had already laid hulls on two classes of ships that were subsequently in excess of the restrictions. And they called those two classes the Washington ships because, like cherry trees, Washington forced them to be cut down. (laughs) Almost bad enough for you. I'm I'm just going to recycle that and claim it was mine next time I'm talking with all my Navy mates. <laughs> now, we've already talked about a, a, a little bit about how this um, this transition was a little bit odd. So, I mean, uh, you also talked about the cultural similarities. Um, but, you know, Athens and Sparta were, were, you know, to us, pretty culturally similar. Um, but they didn't seem to have, well, they didn't really transfer any power. They gave it all to Persia. Um, and they didn't do it. They didn't do it peacefully. So, so is it? So this is an anomaly, right? Yeah, it is an anomaly that both countries were democracies. Both countries thought of themselves in imperial terms, and and for me, one of the most interesting pieces of research was trying to figure out when does the penny drop? When do Britain and the United States start to feel like each other? And it doesn't happen symmetrically. So it happens first for Britain. You can see, if you read British travel writers, for example, British uh, traveling to the United States, when Charles Dickens came, for example, he described the United States as more barbaric than the Indian cultures it supplanted on the continent, right? There's a real vitriol in how the British look at the United States' outsized claims of republicanism, especially before the Civil War, right? Especially when we are still a slaveholding society. That just looked ridiculously hypocritical to the British. But after the American Civil War, and about five or ten years after, you begin to see an appreciation, not yet an affection, but an appreciation. So one British travel writer uh, records that two things were fundamentally ground into him in America. The first was that the United States is unstoppable 
right? The United yeah. States is the future. And second, it is uh, culturally irredeemable, right? So that only in the 1870s, the, the religious awakenings that you see in the United States begin yeah. to have similarity. It grows slowly and it grows faster in Britain than in the United States. And that's partly the result of who we are as an immigrant community, right? The enormous number of Irish Americans who didn't have the same sense of sentimentality about Britain, and even English immigrants to the United States who adopt a more Republican view yeah. tend to be more anti-British. So it was for me, I'm sorry to go on so long, but this is no. my favorite part of the book. <laughs> that is that the, the reason that the British government doesn't recognize the Confederacy is in large part because who the United States is as an immigrant community with wide political participation yeah. worried the Palmerston government that it would echo back into British domestic politics. That is, that if they aligned themselves with the aristocratic slaveholding South, that it would increase pressure for political liberalization in Britain, and it would make more difficult control of Ireland and Scotland. So, you know, we in the United States often worry that our immigrant composition will be a vulnerability in a time of war, most disgracefully the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Yeah. And in the most important case where a country could have imposed damage on the United States, who we are as an immigrant community stayed the hand of the strongest power in the international order. Now, it seems like this book can do a lot to inform strategic theory and future relations between great powers, um, you know, if they read it. Uh, but I haven't. Um, but they, they, <laughs> they definitely will read it after this interview. Uh, and I will definitely, I'll definitely read it after this interview. Um, but what, what can the experiences of the transfer from Pax Britannica to Pax Americana teach modern foreign policy experts? For me, the most important lesson uh, was that great powers behave internationally as a macrocosm of their domestic political order. That yeah. the United States played by the rules that Britain had established until we were the dominant power in the international order. And then we tried to remake the international order to look like our domestic, or to magnify and reflect our domestic political beliefs. So if you want to understand what a hegemonic China would, how they would recreate the international order, the, the way to bet your money is by looking at their domestic political order. Yeah. Okay. So that, that kind of leads on to my next question, because um, I'm pretty sure I've found the Latin for, uh, for a Chinese um, piece. Um, so, so how could how could this how could this apply to a possible transfer of power to Pax Seneca? I think it extraordinarily unlikely that if the China we see today continues to grow in economic, political, and military strength and cultural strength, such that they 
believe they could actually uh, become the rule setter and enforcer of the international order and supplant American power in that role. I do not believe that will happen peacefully with this China. The good news, however, is that I do not believe this China can continue to grow in economic, military, political, and cultural power without liberalizing. Yeah. That is, I really, I know it's unfashionable to believe Frank Fukuyama uh, that the end of history is the liberal order. Yeah. Uh, but I actually do believe it. And, and I actually think that you can already see the fostering elements that will create a different China, um, that will force a government either to become so repressive that it cannot sustain an intellectually creative economy, or to modify its behavior such that they become much more like Australia and the United States. That's, that's interesting, uh, because we're a really big fan of uh, liberal democracy on the show. Um, yeah, I'm going to play my, my hand and lose all my, uh, all my listeners who live in autocratic nations. Uh, but... <laughs> That actually includes all the UK. Um, oh, I suppose it probably <laughs> includes Australia because we're part of the, the Commonwealth as well. But um, I'm actually going to I'm going to ad lib and go off go off topic here, not off topic, off run sheet here, uh, listeners. Mainly because uh, I know that some of my colleagues who are now uh, studying at the Australian Command and Staff College have just finished an essay on the Thucydides trap in Graham Allison's work. So, so your book sounds like a perfect match to read with Graham Allison's book. And listeners, I'll make sure I put the links through our bookstore on the uh, on the website and our social media so that you can uh, compare both these books. Um, so, what does your book say in general terms and your your research? What does that point to in terms of a Thucydides trap? Uh, Graham and I have been firing salvos at each other uh, for about the last six months on this. Oh, really? He, his methodology uh, in coming up with the book on the Thucydides trap, yeah. uh, his methodology about what a hegemonic transition entails, I don't think um, is accurate. Yep. So, for example, one of the cases that was defining of the Thucydides trap for Graham, one of the peaceful transitions he believes occurred, was the was a shift in power from post-World War II Britain and France to Germany, becoming the dominant player on the European continent. And that's clearly true as far as it goes, but the methodological problem is that all three of those countries had a security guarantor, and yeah. it was the same security guarantor. Yeah. Yeah. So there was no changing of the rules. There was a redistribution of power within a common security framework. Yeah. So, so I, my definition of hegemonic power transition, what makes a hegemon isn't that it is the necessarily the strongest power isn't necessarily the richest power. What it is is the country willing and able to set and enforce rules. And that in the post-war period 
in the West has been the United States. And so I don't accept Graham's definition that there are other peaceful transitions. So the Thucydides trap that he sees, uh, he draws from the passage you will know about uh, the war between Athens and Sparta, that Sparta, fearing a rising Athens, chose war in order to contain them. Yeah. I, that's also, Thucydides does say that sentence. I don't actually think it's a particularly rich reading of Thucydides, though. Because if you look, for example, at the way Athens was baiting Sparta and Sparta's yeah. reaction, in both cases, it's elites can lose control of the debate and populists take over. Yeah. So it's not as neat, it's not as neat a framing as Thucydides himself tries to summarize. Yeah. Yeah, no, I um I I I didn't get too much on the Thucydides trap from Thucydides himself. I had to find someone else's interpretation because uh you know it's it's basically uh Athens, you know, just stirring up trouble, Corinth stirring up trouble. Um it it's it's Pericles just gobbing off, so uh that's quite interesting. <laughs> but um another example given in uh Allison is the transfer is uh the peaceable Transfer of power between Spain and Portugal. Uh, I think it's in the uh, in the American colonies. Um, that I think is the best case. Really. For another hegemonic transition. Yeah, because really? the other he he cites three successful cases: Spain to Portugal. Yeah. Um. Uh. This rise of the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Uh, which again doesn't does not produce a hegemonic transition and Britain, France to Germany after World War II. Uh, the Spain to Portugal one, I think, is the most persuasive of those three cases. Yeah. But even there, Portugal retained an awful lot. Um, so I don't think it was Spain supplanting Portugal. It was Spain getting in on the rush to the new world. They didn't prevent Portugal from also colonizing much of the new world. And their deal was negotiated by someone who's willing to exercise a type of power that was uh, threatening to both Spain and Portugal. The Pope coming in and, and threatening excommunication is a form of exercising power. Now, the Pope may not right. rule a country, uh, although he has, he has the Vatican, I suppose. Um, but in, in a way, you know, they too are actually looking to a higher power to sort it out for them. So uh, if you take... Yeah, so if you take the real world uh, politics, add in the, the spiritual considerations that drove that real politic, you know, I don't see that it was necessarily a transfer between two hegemons. It was two people, you know, the ultimate hegemon for Spain and uh, Portugal they were reacting to. But that's a bit of a loose translation, so uh, hopefully Gary Madison doesn't hear that one. Um, I promise I will cite you when I throw it at him. Definitely, definitely cite me because uh, then I'll get at least one more listener. Um, <laughs> look, look, Corey, we uh, we've we've uh, we've given this a, a good run, and uh, I'm conscious of the time. Not because because your workday is probably close to over, but my workday is just about to begin. Um, <laughs> because I'm calling you from the future, uh, so. We've got a final question on the show, and uh, 
and it doesn't relate to hegemonic power transfer, but it relates to the results of hegemonic power transfer. Um, and it's one I ask all guests, and it's one I've asked you before. Uh, and it relates to our mission on the show, which is to define war in as many ways as possible so we can continue to frame a debate, an important international conversation about one of the uh, most costly acts a state uh, can uh, commit to. And therefore, we like to talk about it a lot. And each guest gets asked to finish a sentence. The sentence starts with war is. So uh, without plagiarising yourself, um, <laughs> you, can all, you, can always, you can always cite yourself as the, uh, as the well-honed academic you are, but I ask you to finish the sentence, Corey. War is. War is hell and we are redefining it. Wow, that is excellent. Because I recall I give you the one I actually most believe last time, which is that war is a violent contest of political will. Yeah. Um, and in order to have a different answer this time, I tried to think that, that of Sherman's great passage, war is hell and you can't refine it. Yeah. And I don't think we are refining it, even though we have done more than any militaries in history to limit collateral damage, to try and avoid civilian casualties rather than making them tools of war. Yeah. But uh, I think we are redefining it in the way that new technologies and new operational practices yeah. uh, and volunteer forces that aren't universally conscripted across our societies. We are redefining warfare in this contemporary age. There are elements of it that will remain consistent and that are enduring, but, but there are a lot of variables involved as well. And we're experimenting, you guys doing some of the most interesting experimenting of anybody yeah. on what could be changed. That's, uh, that, is, that is a, a fascinating definition. And considering you've, you've just said that it's not uh, your favorite uh, one, um, that's still a pretty good crack. It's also the second time in 2018 a guest has said uh, war is hell and. Uh, so there's obviously a lot of civil war reading happening at the moment that I'm not tracking. Um, Sherman's memoirs are really wonderful, yeah. even beyond the part where he talks about being stationed in Northern California, where I'm from. <laughs> and uh, and he also has a really good guide for anyone that just wants to go, just travel down south and start burning everything. So um, <laughs> I discourage that. I am opposed to that policy. Well, Allow me to state. It's not really a Northern California uh, type of mentality, although I have heard Northern California wants to be its own state again. I've heard the debate has flared up again. So, so, so they're going to take the Redwoods with them, listeners. Uh, Corey, thanks again for coming on the show. It's always great to chat to you, and it's, it's always great when you release a new book so that I can, uh, I can tease you about not having read it. <laughs> so next time I'm going to refuse to come on the show until you can pass a five question multiple choice quiz about whatever it is I'm writing about <laughs> that's, a, that's a deal just as long as you come on the show <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me my friend I really appreciate this conversation thank you and listeners you can appreciate the conversation by engaging with uh, Corey the show, or even myself if you're really desperate, on social media. We do most of our chat on Twitter because it works really well like a conversation. And you can follow Corey at Corey Shockey. Now, I'll spell it out there for those uh, 
less astute listeners, it is K-O-R-I-S-C-H-A-K-E. And also, you can get Corey's book within our show notes. Uh, which book? Well, you can buy both Corey's books if you like. Uh, please do. <laughs> but the one we talked about today is Safe Passage, the transition from British to American hegemony. The link's in the show notes, listeners. You know our bookstore. We go through his book depository. They're based in the UK, just like Corey is, and they give you free global shipping. Now, free global shipping, for those who don't know, is free shipping to anywhere in the world. And uh, <laughs> we also want to thank our uh, subscribers uh, through our Patreon account to the TDP community. Your support helps a lot. Thank you very much for your support. Until next time, though, listeners, grab a book and crack on. Join the conversation with us on Twitter at Dead Prussian Pod, on Facebook at The Dead Prussian Page, or on our website www.thedeadprussian.com. All show notes for this episode, as well as copyright information, can be found on the website. The Dead Prussian Podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mick Cook. It is co produced by Amanda Levito. The music used throughout is Caught in the Beat by Broke for Free and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution license. All opinions expressed by individuals on the podcast are those of the individual and not necessarily representative of any other organisation.